Hey gang, welcome back for this week's episode of your favorite podcast, Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. Don't forget to like and follow me on social media. Check the episode description for all my links. You know, writing ads are one of the things that I find really difficult. If you hate listening to them as much as I hate writing them, please consider subscribing on Spotify for just five bucks a month and you won't have to listen to ads anymore. Speaking of ads, I actually don't really have a sponsor for this episode, besides the continuing support of my amazing patrons on patreon.com slash Rancher. There's a Patreon link in the episode description. So let's talk about some of those links that are there. I'd really love it if you'd all take the time and click some links. These are companies that I like, and more importantly, products that I use. These companies and businesses support the podcast, and I'd really appreciate it if you'd show them some love. Last week when Chad and I said that grass-fed beef will be a byproduct of the carbon sequestration industry, we're both pretty serious. If you want to know more, click the Grassroots Carbon link in the description. The Noble Research Institute has invited me to their Essentials of Regenerative Ranching course in Stillwater, Oklahoma, August 8th and 9th. There's a link for that as well if you'd like to know more. And if you're wondering where you can find info about those two events and just about every other soil health or regenerative ag event, click the Soil Health Events link in the description or on my link tree. That's it. That's all I got. Here we go. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So you're in the background information uh, that I was saying, you're on the Kiss the Ground board and you co-own a restaurant with Woody Harrelson. So did you meet him before or after you got involved with Kiss the Ground? Oh, way, way, way before. Uh, Woody and I, uh, I think I was 13 when I met Woody. So he, he was in Hawaii um, and my mom's identical twin sister lives rural off-grid farming uh, bamboo in Hawaii. And um, I guess he he wandered up her driveway looking to see if anybody had any um, weed. And <laughs> it, and then I'm 45 and I was 13 then. So how uh, you can do the math, how long we've been friends. Um, his wife is dear friends with my mom's identical twin sister and um, the, by extension, my mother. And um, so we have all um, been friendly for a long time and he really believed in me when there was no um vegan restaurants with like brewery or beer or bars or they were all just kind of like little sprout avocado little holes in the walls that nobody wanted to go to um he believed in a bigger more glamorous vision for that and um that was you know 12 or 13 years ago and i've only been on i mean kiss the ground didn't exist back then my brother was the founder of kiss the ground and that happened in i don't know 2014 or 15 something like that oh very cool i i mean i know woody harrelson he's been fairly outspoken i mean i don't i don't follow show business or hollywood or any of that stuff but 
I know he's been a vegan for a while when he did the, that movie Zombie Land, and he was supposed to eat a Twinkie. Or he kind of like he had a thing like I he they had to find or make a vague, vegan Twinkie just for his character in that movie because of his beliefs. And if you're going to stick to your guns, stick to your guns. And I respect that. But it's interesting to hear that you know that he has been involved in or at least been thinking about food in a different context for that long. But what I really want to know is when he walked up the driveway back in the early 90s, did you hook him up with weed? I would say that I was 13. So my um, selling weed days were not had not come upon me yet. Um, but <laughs> I, I suspect somebody on the farm uh, hooked him up with uh, something. Uh, but is this a neither confirm nor deny thing? This is a neither confirm nor deny thing. But I would say that he has always been really mindful about food um, and also about the environment, but not in a, uh, you know, end of days fear mongering way, but more in a solution um, oriented way. And all of us uh, are allowed to change our minds about stuff. And so I started by having vegan restaurants because I thought that that was, I actually did think that that was the way forward for uh, food and humanity. And I was misguided. And um, that misguided, uh, I was like, I learned it from Graham Sate from a TED talk someone sent me. And I thought, wow, I'm completely off base. And that's how and I grew up on a farm. I, you know, at, but we were always vegetarians. We, my dad grew apples and um, vegetables. And uh, so we always had animals for inputs, but we didn't eat them. Um, and so I was, I was just raised that way. And my parents were hippies and that was kind of their thing. But our whole family has shifted. My mom and me are still vegetarians. I think we're the only ones. Um, but we all recognize that animal agriculture uh with good stewardship is the way forward. And that is why I, you know, had these restaurants and realized that food in the landfill was far more detrimental to than any cow farts that people want to complain about. And so I, I realized that I was actually part of the problem and not part of the solution. And that's when I uh, purchased Soa Heart Farm and we started keeping all the scraps from the restaurants, composting them, mixing them with cow uh, manure. And now it's been uh, five and a half years and we haven't bought any inputs in three and a half years. And we're producing about $650,000 uh, worth of produce a year um, with zero vegetables. Like it's regenerative farming with vegetables is really hard, um, but it's uh, we haven't bought any inputs in over three years with the exception of hay, because cal land in California is very expensive. I'm not, I don't have enough uh, grazing. Uh, so we buy hay, but that's the only input that I've bought. The question that probably a lot of people are going to want to know is after so many years, what are your yields like for your crops compared to neighboring conventional operations? Oh, it's crazy. Um, I bought a property down the street from me and flipped it actually. And it was only 17 acres and it was avocados in the front seven acres and oranges in the back. And so I got all the records with it. And so they were using double the water that I was using and they were producing about between $35,000 a year 
and $75,000 a year, depending on the avocados, if they were a avocados have a good year and a bad year, basically, um, because the fruit stays on for so long when they're flowering, the plant only has so much energy to make new fruit when it's a heavy year because they're still holding last year's fruit when the flowers come. Um, anyway, so we're talking about 10x um, and I use half the water and 10x the produce. So it's it's like it's crazy. But the problem is the labor. We're still not profitable because um, unlike operations where you're grazing and um and it can be a lower labor, lower inputs. When you're growing vegetables and you're trying not to use plastic, you're trying and you're not um, tilling and you're not, um, you know, using chemicals to get rid of the weeds. Um, it's it's labor. It's labor that kills us. But I don't see a path forward where humans don't eat vegetables. So I do want to figure out, crack the code for regenerative farming for vegetables. Um and I do think it's in the food forest uh, paradigm. And that's, you know, we have rows and rows of orchard trees and we grow all our row crops in the 15 to 20 foot aisleways. Um, and I can send some photos if you want to show your uh, listeners what I'm talking about. But basically we're growing corn between lemon trees or we're growing cabbage between avocado trees. And um, even we found we had a, lost a thousand avocado trees the first year we were here because um, the heat over 120 degrees for multiple days in a row. Now, when we plant young trees, a new orchard planting, we plant corn and the corn actually protects the trees the first two seasons and it aspirates um, the moisture and creates basically swamp cooler air conditioner plant matter between these rows. So when you do have a hot day, you're getting short amount of sun and lots of moisture being aspirated from the tall uh, corn stalks. And so we do think that a lot of what we're learning in this experiment, grand experiment of vegetable farming as a regenerative farmer uh, can be valuable um, for other people moving forward. I agree. I, I was just sitting here, I was, I was listening to you and thinking about, I just finished a book called 1491 I, and i can't even remember the author but it's about um it kind of goes into pre-columbian americas south america mesoamerica and a little bit into into north america they don't necessarily talk about the plain states because by the time anybody got here to explore the plain states smallpox had already wiped out you know 90 to 95 percent of the people but there was there's good accounts of you know, South American civilizations and Peru, Mesoamerican civilizations, you know, Mexico, Ecuador area and Native American civilizations up and down the East Coast. And it's really fascinating to, you know, to, I say read, but I didn't read it. I listened to it in an audio book, but it's, it's really, <laughs> it's really fascinating to hear about, you know, some of the accounts about how the natives I can't even say manipulated their environment, but it, it sounds like there was a lot of wholesale terraforming that happened in South America and Peru and Ecuador and Brazil and even up into Mexico. And something else I learned from that book that I didn't know, I knew potatoes were South were originated in South America. Right. Tomatoes. I didn't know oh. tomatoes came from where we're, native to the Americas and were imported to Europe, um, beans and squash. I mean, squash. Yeah. Okay. I kind of knew that one, but I, I guess I really didn't realize, um, 
so many beans were domesticated by pre-Columbian cultures in South America. Uh, yeah, it's there's um, we're moving to Bandera, Texas. We're leaving California and we're moving um, to Bandera, Texas. And there's a small museum there that has a exhibit right now about pre before it was Mexico, like 1500s when it was called New Spain and the the trade routes between Asia and about a lot of the things that we consider Asian food um, a lot of the chilies and all that stuff actually came from uh, the Americas, specifically what we now call Mexico at the time was called New Spain. Um, and it's a it's a it's heavily religious, the exhibit, but there's a bunch of stuff about um, food. But there's also um, kind of these Asian versions of Christ, all these big sculptures of um, an Asian Christ. And it's very interesting to see. Um, and they have a replica of the ships that were trading during that time and what the main things that they were bringing back and forth was. And they talk about the Asian influence in New Spain. And my husband is indigenous from the Oaxaca region of uh, Mexico. And he's was very isolated. The road didn't get to his village till 1991. So wow. his father doesn't drive a car to this day. He only drives a horse or rides a horse. Um, and so if you think so about your that, husband got a road to his town the same year you met Woody Harrelson looking for weed in Hawaii. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah that's just for context. Yes. Um, just did that math real quick. <laughs> so, um, so that's that that so I don't know, but he if you look at how my husband looks, it, there's a lot of uh, Asian like the eyes and all of that. And so he was said my husband was like, well, I wonder like how much of this trading it had there was people coming back and forth as well. And then how much of that um, and we're not going to submit our DNA to 23andMe to find out, but I'm not uh, either. <laughs> interested in anybody owning my genetic makeup. But um, it was interesting conversation. It was cool to take the kids and have them think about, you know, well, spicy. When you go to a Chinese restaurant and there's spicy food, did those chilies really come from where daddy was born? And, you know, it was interesting to look at that. But there is why, a lot of why evidence. is rice. Why oh, is rice such a staple in Mexican food? Rice isn't native to this continent. I think, was it from then? Well, no, but they don't even grow rice in Mexico. No, but why is there it, such a thing as, as Spanish rice? And why when you go to a Mexican restaurant, it's always rice and beans? I don't know. It's a good question. I think that we probably started buying something from them that we wanted and we started importing cheap rice from China at some point to make up for what we were taking out. I'm not sure what it was, but generally that's how rice gets places. It's yeah, I mean, we I, like rice is in it, like where quinoa grows. Now all those people are eating rice because a bunch of hippies in California want to eat quinoa with their kale in every meal. Um, is that really or should we be eating brown rice that grows in Sacramento rather than quinoa from the certain agro like agricultural level of the planet it's like a very small has to be a certain height has to be a certain depth from the equator like quinoa doesn't grow everywhere and why we have to eat it with every meal in california is confusing to me well i mean if california is that confusing i guess you can always go to texas i, I am why are you, why are you leaving california um i feel a little bit like a political refugee 
I always say I'm a radical centrist. Um, and I'm joking because there's nothing radical about being centrist. But if everybody's going to be the radical left and the radical right. Um, but I've worked for 13 years every day running my restaurants. And during the pandemic, the powers that be chose to shut us down for years. And um, I was in a <laughs> I was in a contract for thirty one million dollars to sell my restaurants and expand over the United States in 2019, 2020, early 2020, we were in the due diligence period doing all the work. And then the world got shut down. And when I say the world, I mean, the blue world got shut down. And um, now my restaurants are, you know, ho are hobbling along and doing okay. But it's not, there's nothing to sell, there's nothing there. And I feel like I worked really, really hard to build something that made a difference for the planet that had this whole food loop that was taking care of the supply chain, taking care of my employees, everything that California says that they care about. And literally they destroyed it without any care or consideration. And they continue to do whatever they want. And the small business is, and the farmer is not at the legislative table at all. And I, um, I can't, I don't see how I can just keep paying into a system that I can't get behind. And, you know, I walk outside of my restaurant and we clean up feces every day in the like outdoor patio area because it's a private place at nighttime for people to use the restroom. Um, you know, people come into my restaurant on Mother's Day and got got naked and got on all fours and screamed things you can't imagine to three generations of women at a table and the police didn't come and they sent a social worker to deal with the distraught unhoused person. And I'm not saying that the unhoused person doesn't deserve a social worker, but I'm saying that in the immediate, the police need to come and break up the situation. And my staff is getting spit on. I mean, it's just crazy. It's crazy. It's a disruption crazy. to your business. It's a disruption. To your, it's uncomfortable for your customers. It's a crappy situation for your staff to have to deal with. But yeah. I, and, and it's not just that it's the farm. I'm, I'm in, you know, 10 different County or 14 different County violations, code compliance issues that are to any where else in the world a farm would not be, you know, I needed more cooler space. And so I converted a tough shed, not a tough shed, but one of those companies, like a shed into right. a, a walk-in cooler with a cool bot. I don't know if you've ever seen a cool bot. They're awesome. You can turn a window AC into a refrigerator, but I did it all code compliant, like with the FRP on the walls, diamond plate on the floors, everything, you know, the light UV light for bacteria, everything compliant and they said that I can't I can buy a walk-in cooler and or I could have a shed but I can't have a shed that is a walk-in cooler it needs to be demoed and removed that's just one of 14 violations but the main violation is they won't let any ag workers live on the farm and only one ag worker for every 40 acres in agriculture but that model only works for big monocrop ag that doesn't work for other types of ag. It doesn't work for a market garden. It doesn't work for, I mean, we're growing 300 different species of stuff on the farm. We have a vineyard, we have a hop yard. I mean, that, that doesn't work for us. And 
people are then screaming equity everywhere and that people need to share. And then when people are living, I live with 27 people on my ranch and we live in harmony. We eat off the land. We have the cows. We get, you know, there's we the cows get milked every morning. Like there's orange juice, fresh orange juice off the trees. Like everybody gets to eat. Everybody works here. Everybody gets a paycheck. And that's not allowed. But they told me that if I moved the tiny houses out to the street and they were disconnected from septic and power, then they would be considered unhoused and there was nothing they could do about it. And I'm like, so let me get this straight. <laughs> if I put them in an unsanitary, unsafe and situation, then we're just going to look the other way. But as long as they're hooked up to power, water and septic, it's illegal. I mean, I just, you can't wrap your head around this stuff. If my compost pile is more than six feet tall, they will come and give me a fine because I could start a fire. You can't make this up. No, I just got one of my other violations. They want engineering on the animal structures. So if you imagine some, uh, we're in an oil drilling part of the world. And so I have a lot of oil pipes. So there's like oil pipes welded and then sheet metal or wood with sheet metal, two walls, three walls, different versions for shade for goats, sheep, cows. They want engineering on this. I can't get you engineering on it, so it needs to be torn down. But I can't tear it down because the animal county control would then say there's no shade. And I wouldn't want to have my animals here with no shade forget animal county control but you get do you see what i'm saying like that level of micromanaging it it feels invasive well you're not in compliance we're not going to help you get to compliance we're not going to tell you the path that you should have taken to get to compliance we're just going to tell you you're out of compliance and you have to deal with it or you're going to pay a fine it it oh i i almost don't know what to say like that just sounds like a bureaucratic legal nightmare of a place to even try to do business in no wonder you're really and and i've been very successful at doing business here for a long time but and i if i if my businesses were still thriving maybe i would tough it out but i'm not going to stay here pay the 14 percent income tax pay the property taxes and not be able to make a living and not be able to send my children to school because I didn't choose to give them specific medications that the government feels is necessary for them to be educated. So I am homeschooling. It just seems like too much to, to live um, here. And I'm. Are you, are you talking about vaccinations? Yeah, there's no, there's zero exemptions for any vaccinations in California. There's no religious there's no personal exempt like belief exemptions there's zero exemptions if the state says that there's a vaccine you've got to take it and there's and there's 52 that the state says need to be 52 injections there some of them are repeats okay that's but i don't it, you can't be a regenerative farmer and look at what the magic of soil, the magic of microbiology, and not also know that our body is a miracle in the same way and has that same magic. And that like what you put into it is going to make a difference. And what, I mean, it, you can't, or you can, I'm sure there's lots of regenerative farmers that don't see it this way. But in my opinion, I look at the miracle of the soil. I look at what we did in just 
three years here from like desert, rocks, sand, glyphosate, no water infiltration to, you know, 18 inches of deep black soil and no inputs for three years. We did that in a short amount of time. And I guess the real problem is, is I did it in California. Okay. <laughs> so now I got to start over. <laughs> well, and, it, it's not starting over. It's an opportunity to try again and do better. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's one way to put it. Um, one of the things I like to say a lot is shake the hand that feeds you. And I love to point out that it's extremely applicable to people that want to eat an alternative. I say alternative, want to eat the way they want to eat, whether it's carnivore, whether you want to be vegetarian or whether you want to be a vegan. I fully support that choice on one condition. You make an effort to shake the hand that feeds you. And I love what you're doing. Like you're, you're trying to grow food, have a restaurant, have a place to sell it. And I think that's a great model because, and I think, what am I trying to say here? It, it's like with beef, okay? You can either play the wholesale commodity game and take a few pennies and be content with the price you're offered, or you can control the supply chain from growing to customer. I and mean, whether we're talking about cattle from breeding from sperm to steak, or we're talking about avocado trees from seed to fruit, it's important. It's important to know where your food came from, how it was grown, who grew it, that they have good working conditions, that they have good living conditions. And more importantly, it's forging that connection between the consumer and the producer. Okay. And keeping that close, keeping that, keeping that local. And one of the things, uh, I think it was Kate Cavanaugh a few episodes ago, she has the term flavor of place. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I thought you might. Um, so the reason I, I came up with that, that phrase, shake the hand that feeds you. It's simple. It's elegant. It works for everybody, no matter what dietary choice. And it starts, if you think about it, it'll start someone thinking down a path of, okay, well, where is my food come from? Yeah. And I, I mean, I always say, I don't care what you eat as long as you're eating awake. And, and I mean that by saying sort of similar to what you say, like, do you can't just eat asleep and not have any sense of where your food is coming from and where, cause I don't care how healthy you are. If you're on some weird banana diet and all you eat is bananas from South America or Mexico or whatever, like that's not a sustainable, I, I was arguing with a dear friend of mine that lives in Chicago. That's a fruititarian as to, cause he's, you know, up against this, um, struggling with that maybe veganism isn't the right way and uh and I and he called me and I won't say his name but uh because he's kind of made his whole career on being kind of a famous vegan and so I said well my question is if if the supply chain went down and you live in Chicago could you be a fruititarian? No. So like you have two choices. You can be a fruititarian on a very skinny stripe around the entire equator. And you should move to one of those places if you want to be a fruititarian. But it is not reasonable to be a fruititarian. It is actually completely self 
centered and taking up way more resources than necessary for you to get all the calories for, and yes, he looks, he's looks 20 years younger than he is. He's got a six pack. Like I get all that stuff, like metabolically it's working for him, but it doesn't, it doesn't work for the whole. And we're all one single cell in the whole. And so I'm always trying to um, encourage people to eat where you are. And then we need to make these hub and spoke models that can be connected. And so we can trans trade food to different areas or purchase food from different areas. But the base of your diet wants to be regional. And I have a CSA or a, a box program. It's not really a CSA because they don't pay it up front. They just pay every week, but, and get it delivered to their house. It's really like a veggie box program to your house. But anyways, we have this box and you don't know how many times people cancel like, oh, I'm just, you know, it's like you stopped having cabbage and broccoli and I'm just, I my kids only eat cabbage or, or my kids only eat broccoli or whatever. And I understand having picky kids, but like also I can't grow broccoli in a hundred degrees outside. And so can you enjoy tomatoes, cucumbers, Swiss chard and um, I don't know, squash and the thing, zucchini. I got tons of zucchini, eggplants. Can you enjoy those foods this time of year? And then enjoy the, the verasicas when it's cold out. We're blessed enough here in California that you can actually eat locally year round, but people, they just don't have that mindset to want to. And during the pandemic, the farm was doing really great. And we were selling a lot of boxes. And as soon as people were not afraid of Whole Foods anymore, then they stopped buying my boxes. And I was so disappointed because I thought, oh, wow, this is catching on. People care about the conditions in which the people that are working, the conditions in which the animals that are part of the inputs, the conditions, all that, and the, the forever chemicals and how we're treating our water and everything. I thought people cared about it. And literally they didn't. They only cared. They were literally scared of touching the pin pad at Whole Foods. And I... I was so disappointed by that. Our box sales went from 250 to 300 a week, and now we're down below 100 a week. And and those same people will go out and protest Jeff Bezos launching rockets. Yes. Like, you, you, you got to figure this one out, people. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, people are very disconnected from their food and I don't, and that's why the project we're doing in Texas, I'm hoping is going to make a difference in that way. It's like 30 tiny houses. It's a hospitality. We're having an on-farm brewery, on-farm restaurant, and 30 places to stay. And my hope is that people can come and like get connected and remember to, okay, I should be buying locally. And these are the questions I should be asking my farmers when I go buy locally. And I should get a meat box from even if it's not locally delivered from somebody that I trust and care about. And I have all the certifications and I honestly, I hate them. I, I I think that we need to go back to a system where I buy my meat from you because I trust you. And I know that you're not going to put anything in my meat that you wouldn't put in your own children's mouth. And that's what I want to get back to. Everybody relies so heavily on these these regenerative certified organic certified bent demeter certified but we have to trust each other and we we have to and it's crazy because people trust like eating almost anything from the grocery store that has forever chemicals pfas 
I mean, we found out that Roundup of all the food on the market, Cheerios has the highest level of Roundup followed by Ritz crackers. What are the first kit foods that we'd feed our children? Oh, Cheerios. Got to give them Cheerios. Cheerios. They're easy. They're fun. They're easy to hold on to. Kids love them. Kids love them. And the reality is that we trust this stuff that comes in these very sterile packages from Target or wherever, but we don't make an effort to trust our farmers. And I think there's like four or five simple questions you can ask a farmer to know whether you want to eat the food that they're using that they're growing or not. And it, it's it's very simple, but also we can't expect farmers to make the shift. Look, I'm out here spending all this money trying to make this happen. And no, I'm 45 minutes from Los Angeles and I can't sell more than a hundred boxes a week. That's crazy because you would think that that's the market that cares about it. And it's not that I don't have good branding or social media or presence or anything. Like I'm all of that stuff. And still the reality is people have traded resilience for convenience in such a way that I'm not sure how to make people go back. There isn't a go back. There is, <laughs> I don't think there is a go back. I think that it's going to take what I've been thinking about, about, you know, the trust and the convenience. And I, I also made a note, Food looks pretty, you know, pretty packaging, packaging claims, you know, 21 essential minerals and vitamins, 18 grams of protein. Look at this bright yellow package with red letters on it. You know, they spend millions upon millions of dollars to figure out the exact shade of yellow, the exact shade of red that's going to induce hunger or going to make you make your eyeballs light up and look at that package and read their claim. And, you know, it, it's a convenience. That's my, that would be my interpretation of why the surge of customers you got in 2020 started to leave as soon as Whole Foods opened up again. They want that convenience. They want the convenience of being able to get things out of season, even if they're not local. And, you know, there, there's a strong argument to be made about seasonality of diets and when things, you know, should be, you know, when things were traditionally consumed because that's when they were in season and that's when they were available. We've been so spoiled by being able to get strawberries in February. Like I remember as a, as a little kid. And here, strawberries are in season in February. <laughs> I mean, in California, but yes. They're I, not I, I get that. I get that. I remember when I was, when I was little, we went to the grocery store. I was probably like four or five. So this is early, early eighties. I went to the grocery store with my mom and uh, my parents had a garden here. So there were strawberries here. We had fresh garden strawberries. And we went to the store and I walked by the strawberries and I'm like, mom, 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 let's get some strawberries. We don't have any at home. Let's get some strawberries. She's like, no, we'll have, a, well, you know, ours will be here in another couple of months. Don't worry about it. Ours will be here in another couple of months. No, let's get some now. She says, no, we're not buying those because those are imported and those don't have any taste. Okay. We didn't buy the strawberries. And I think about, I, I just have trouble squaring seasonality of food 
with the way people want to eat. I mean, there's some things that, yeah, okay, it's not a bad idea. We can eat that all year. There's, we invented bread. We made bread from grain so we could store the goodness of the grain for longer, right? We had a root cellar. I grew up in upstate New York on a farm, a small apple orchard, and um, it was like 28 acres or something. And we had a huge vegetable garden and we had a root cellar and we put all the roots into the cellar. And those were the vegetables. We were vegetarians in upstate New York. And I mean, there wasn't tons of vegetables even at the grocery store back then in the wintertime. You could get celery, you could get iceberg lettuce, and then, you know, the winter squashes and stuff and carrots like that was like the, the vegetables at the store back then cold season vegetables stuff yeah. you put in soup or stew and yes potato perfect sense rock yeah no and you'd maybe get broccoli that was coming from california or whatever but yeah, yeah. So, but people are not committed to that people are like oh i don't eat nightshades well okay so what are you going to eat all summer i don't know what to tell you like that's when the nightshades grow in the summertime and yeah, you know, and you get brassicas in the cool seasons and corn in the fall. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that's, you know, that we're just used to having all year and fresh all year. But the problem is these things don't taste like anything. And and there's an impact. Like what I always ask my kids, like, well, what is the real cost of that? We think it's $5, but there's that, there's a styrofoam my daughter loves corn on the cup. And so it's like, she always wants us to buy theirs. It's organic, but it's like wrapped in plastic in a styrofoam tray. And occasionally I let her get it, but it's, it's also like, what is the real cost of that? That styrofoam thing is going to be here forever. That plastic is here forever. And we ate those four pieces of corn. And I know even why it's being sold like that, because it's hard to grow organic corn without getting worm in the top. So they're all chopped off and then they sold in that thing so that they're only this much of it. So it doesn't matter that they had worm in the top of them. And as a farmer, I understand that. I respect why they started selling corn like that. Um, but, you know. I'd rather have a worm in my corn that it be soaked in a bunch of per pesticide and herbicide and fungicide. Like, oh yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. I'm, I'm, I love them. I always, there's a video of me on my Instagram where I tell, I'm like, I love my worms. They're kind of like pets. You got to feed them. And I go show everybody my 50 foot worm bin, but I, I love um, worms, but I love, uh, I don't love corn worms, but I, there's nothing really to be done about them. Yeah, I was just having a conversation with my dad yesterday about plastics like in, in, in almost the same context, I grew up, my dad was, was pretty frugal. I mean, he's a guy that'll, he'll wash a Ziploc bag and reuse it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Seems a little weird. His, I wash, I wash Ziploc bag. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, we, we freeze a lot of strawberries and blackberries and mulberries, and then I make smoothies for the kids. And then I feel like I'm just going to use it to freeze berries again. I don't, I, I do wash them. That's fine. I don't think it's weird. I don't think it's weird at all. And here's why. Because just like you said, it's one of those hidden costs. Okay, we go, you'll go to the store and buy a box of, of Ziploc bags for five bucks, 10 cents a bag, big deal. But we don't think about what's behind that plastic bag. There's an oil well or two. 
There's a guy checking the oil well. There's a guy hauling the oil. There's people at the refinery. There's transportation of the chemical plant. There's workers at the chemical plant, transportation of plastic factory, workers at the plastic factory, transportation to the bag making factory. And it goes on and on and on and on and on for an item that nine, that most people, I'm not even going to say 99%. I mean, I just met somebody else that washes plastic bags. So there's more than one of you in the world. <laughs> most people are going to use that thing one time and throw it away. Like I, I, I know it's crazy, but it's, and it's an, Oh, well, I'm buying it in glass. So that's better. But I mean, it's all, it's, there's a cost to all of it. And it, my husband gets so frustrated because I'm constantly saving little jars. And he's like, what do you, we get pallets of jars for you that you make jam? Cause we have a whole line of canned like pickles and all that stuff. He's like, we get pallets of jars. Why are you saving all these jars? And I'm like, well, you never know. I couldn't need it for some seeds or some this or the, and he's like, gets so frustrated. But I think about that. There was, they took sand out of the ocean. They fired it up. They burned it into this jar. They made a top that metal was, came out of some mine and made it into this perfectly designed container. And then people just throw it away after one use. It seems crazy. Exactly. And the, the amount of energy that it takes to make the plastic bag, it's not much, but just, the, the simple concept of we're throwing away of how much plastic are we throwing away? And that all comes from petroleum. And I'm not like, I'm, I'm not against petroleum. I'm not against oil. We need it. We also need to be trying to use less and be more efficient and transit and try to find another source of energy. I'm not arguing that, but the waste in our society, um, you know, earlier you mentioned food waste. I mean, what, and you run restaurants, you run restaurants and a farm. And I know yeah. your food waste is probably significantly less than the figure I'm about ready to say. And the statistic is 40%, like 40% of the food that is grown is wasted. It's not eaten or it goes rotten, gets spoiled and ends up being discarded. Me and my, I have a big adopted son. Um, he's 21. Uh, and we were just talking about this yesterday because he was trying to make a video about it. And I, I bet it's higher than that. And not mine personally. I'm just saying, I'm just saying overall, I'm just thinking I'm at the farm, every romaine head of lettuce, let's say you take off almost half of it and goes back to the compost. Every thing of celery, you're cutting this much off the top and going back to the earth. So I heard that it was 30% from the consumer end. And I'm saying it's got to be about 30% on the farm end. Um, I don't know on vegetables. I don't know what it is on meat. I don't know. I mean, I know here it's like not even if my husband has an animal um, processed, they don't even want to let him keep the inside parts. And he, so, you know, he has to like make a deal on the side with the, guys that work in the back um to, to, like, to get the entrails and awful back yeah and you, and and the head and the tongue and, and not, not the, tongue. the tongue isn't what what do you do with that stuff oh well my husband makes tacos de cabeza for with the head this is very popular in mexican culture um and so where you boil the head um 
with onions and chiles and salt and um and diff oregano and other spices and then once it's all cooked you pull the whole head out and it um as a vegetarian it's not that appealing to me um and they put it on a thing and then they make you know pico de gallo and all the different salsas and then warm tortillas and people just pull pieces that they like the cheek the this the that and then put all the toppings and eat their tacos um this is a is a celebratory thing like Christmas, like, you know, this is a big fun thing. Tacos de Cabeza in his culture. Um, Celebrating the harvest of the animal. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's like reminds him of childhood. It reminds him of, um, you know, how he lived as a child and then the entrails, they clean them all out with Cal or lie lime, uh, not lie lime. And then they make it into um, menudo. So it doesn't um, get wasted. Well, no, and it shouldn't get wasted. And the, I mean, the liver, he cuts up and just eats a little piece every day. And and the heart, I mean, they have a thing to do with everything. Um, my husband and my big son, um, are they don't want any bit of it to go to waste. And I mean, they, uh, the last cow, I mean, my I, the last cow that my husband um, had, harvested i mean he pulled it from i remember it was born on halloween he pulled it from the mother took his shirt off and like it was choking took his shirt off and cleared everything out of its mouth and wiped it all down and you know and so my husband loves deeply the animals and this is very hard for my constituents of, or my customers of the vegan community to understand but they're there, it's just not one way that can love animals, to be honest. And I know that, that that's hard for them to understand, but my husband loves his animals deeply and cares for them deeply and he eats meat. And it, it would be crazy for me to say, oh, well, we're a hundred percent. Nothing on this farm was ever going to die because I don't eat meat. And then have him go to Vaughn's and buy meat that's been dipped in bleach from God knows where and still says organic on it, but it's dipped in bleach. Like that would be crazy pants. So um, I always tell people everybody's path for food is perfect for them. And as long as people are listening to their body and they're eating consciously, mindfully and connected to where their food is coming from, that is their divine path around food. And just like what I think about pharmaceuticals, there's not one prescription for everybody. There's not one diet for everybody. And the idea that there would be or could be is crazy. And people talk about, oh, we're going to have, if everybody ate vegan, there's like, I'm struggling so hard to do a regenerative farm growing vegetables. It is very, very, very hard to do good for the soil and extract as much as we're extracting. And we're doing it. I mean, we are the numbers in our soil is showing it. it. Our water infiltration is crazy. Like we are doing it, but it takes something. And so the idea that we could do good for the planet and everybody only ate vegetables is crazy. And it's okay for me to only eat vegetables and dairy because I have dairy cows and I grow all my vegetables. And so I'm not having some huge expectation of, of taking more than I'm giving. But it is crazy for people to think that everybody could only eat vegetables. Um, people I are talking about, oh, this, and you could put all this stuff into a printer and print meat and all these fake meats that are coming out with all this GMO crap in them. 
a cow can eat grass and turn it into multiple forms of incredible protein. And whether you choose to partake or not is fine, but there is nothing bovine on pasture. There's nothing more beautiful than that. As long as you move them from that pasture to another pasture and another pasture and another pasture, there's nothing more beautiful than that. Bovine on pasture is the path forward. And people want to scream about carbon in the atmosphere because they want to sell electric cars and they want to sell solar panels. But if we really cared about that, we would be highly dedicated to bovine on pasture. There, I mean, we are bringing rain back to the desert. We are creating soil health that is unbelievable. I mean, even in Texas where we are, there, I didn't see a single dung beetle. I didn't see nothing. We drug the holes and planted a bunch of pecan trees when we got there and 1500 fruit trees. And I didn't see a single Mac, forget microbiology. I didn't see any macrobiology. I didn't see, I didn't see a potato bug. I didn't see an earthworm. I didn't see nothing. And in just one year of, I mean, I'm running two farms on two different states. I'm not putting that much energy there in Texas, but just one year of running chickens in the orchard, running some cows on the pastures, having some, uh, you know, a few sheep. I There's dung beetles everywhere. The, the soil, by putting mulch, just chipping the cedars, just chipping the cedars and putting the cedars down and letting them do what seed, the cedars are there for a reason. People are saying it's invasive. Well, no, they're, they're a species that comes in to prepare the soil for the next species. Their acid is trying to, to take that alkaline soil and make it not white, make it black the way it's supposed to be. And so just by chipping cedars and putting it on that alkaline caliche soil, you can't believe in a year, all of a sudden we have black soil, maybe only this much, but give me a couple more years and we'll have more. And it, it's not, we have the power in our diets to make the shift, but it's not about printed food, printed food in a 3D printer. It's about, like you said, shaking the hand of the person that's making your food and whatever that looks like. If you're eating vegetables, then eat from a local farm and know your farmer and eat seasonally. And you want to be vegan. Great. Do that. I'm all for it. If you want to eat only a carnivore diet where you're on the keto thing, then eat nose to tail and support a local farmer that's doing the right thing. And if it's not a local farmer, support a farmer that's in a state that is, it's making a difference for them to be farming in that state. And that that's really simple. And don't get bamboozled by the, the, the grass fed grass fed means nothing. Every cow is grass fed until it's grain finished. Like that's right. Who's grain starting a cow? Like, I don't even know what that means. It's like saying milk fed. Like, yes, every single cow was milk fed, whether it got to suck on its mother's chichi or not. I don't know, but it, it, they were all milk fed at some point. Yeah. I mean, point taken. And that's why I'm not trying, like it, the meat that I'm trying to sell, I'm not trying to sell it as grass fed. I'm trying to sell it as pasture finished on native range. Cause that's a claim. That's a claim that can't, you know, somebody that's somebody that's raising Angus in a feedlot feeding it corn silage, which is technically grass fed. Okay. They can make that claim. They can't say that they were pasture finished on native range. I can. So, right. you know, and we're talking about manufactured food and it's, 
for some reason, I was thinking about, you know, there's people that are vegan because they're against animal cruelty. Okay. You want manufactured chicken nuggets and, and lab grown beef because you're against animal cruelty and factory farms. Well, let's just back up here for a second. There's, there's a lot of chemicals that are needed to make lab grown food. And like one of the, one of the processes to make lab grown meat requires bovine growth serum. Okay. Where do you get bovine growth serum? You get it from pregnant cows at the slaughterhouse. That's where you get it. So, okay, we're going to grow, we're going to make this fake lab meat. And that's what we're going to go buy because we don't like animal agriculture and it's cruel to animals. We're going to feel good about eating that, but it's made, it's, it, it can only be made by killing pregnant cows. Yeah. You're saving the environment. You're doing those animals a big favor, buddy. Appreciate that. That's so crazy. And it's not even just that it's that, that what they're calling like the super cells that are fast growing. What is a fat, what is a forever cell, a fast growing cell, an immortal cell? Those are other names for cancer. That's so we're taking this bovine growth serum from pregnant cows and then we're taking cancer cells and we're taking some cow cells and then we're growing that into some kind of Frankenstein meat and then people are going to feel good about it. I don't, I have never, and this is, I can, this is, I have never eaten an impossible burger. I have never eaten, uh, uh, like a, what beyond on me. I have eaten like a veggie burger, like a patty of beans and rice and whatever I have. I'm, I'm not going to say I haven't eaten those in my life, but I've never, and I've eaten tofu, which is a cultural food from, Asia, but I have never eaten any of these fake like chicken nugget morning star and any of those things. Like I've never been attracted to that. Like it doesn't resonate with anything about it. Does it? Re it's like this much ingredients and I just don't want it. And I've, I look at the back of a package and I can't imagine that food growing. I can't see what that looks like growing in my head. I don't want to eat it. I'm, I'm sorry. Like I'm very it's very simple. And if you were to walk around my farm, you'd see we have 300 olive trees because we can get 55 gallons of olive oil a year. So we have olive oil because I don't want to eat seed oils. And we have, you know, a vineyard and we have our wine and we have persimmons trees. And I make, you know, several hundred gallons of persimmons vinegar every year. I believe that the highest quality food is the simple and old way of making it. And I know you're saying there's no going back. And I agree, but I also see those studies where those all those studies that just came out about Amish children, not one, there's zero cases of Amish children having cancer before 18, zero cases of autism. I mean, this is pretty compelling evidence that we are not going the right way I, when I, we're one in 33 children with autism. I agree with you. And simple old ways of doing things, simple old ways of of preserving and storing food, preparing food is what we need to go back to. And when I said there's no going back, what I I think maybe more what I meant was it's not the ship doesn't change course, right? It either sinks or it crashes. And then the survivors have an opportunity to build something different and try again. And I think that's where we're, I feel like that's where we're headed is like, there's a large part of the existing system that's going to come down. 
that's going to stop working and stop being supported. And there'll be a period of confusion and chaos while the next the next thing is organizing itself. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, my mother, my whole life has said, we just need to tear it all down. And I always thought she was kind of crazy, to be honest. Um, and more recently, I realized she was right about a lot of things. She, she was right. She worked at a, you know, natural food co-op when I was a child. She worked at a baker, organic bakery as a child and just to help us have the higher quality food that we couldn't afford. You know, she really did see um, into the future and we grew up vegetarian and she wanted us to be vegan. And one time she put margarine in the oven to make it melt, to make cookies. And, um, it melted into like some kind of plastic. Basically, she forgot it in the oven and it turned into plastic. And she said, we're never eating margarine again. So I always told people, oh, we grew up vegan, but with butter. And they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, my mom wasn't into eating animals, but she wasn't into eating seed oils either. So we ate all vegetables and grains and a lot of butter. But my mom had, you know, she she had some some insights. She was 19 when she had us. I don't know where she got it, but and, you know, she's always been kind of like she was the cell phones or the radiation from the cell phone is going to hurt people. And I was like, she's crazy. But, you know, 5G, they're rolling it out. It's not going to be healthy. And you know what? She's been right about a lot of things she was way in advance ahead of. And I actually feel really grateful that I got to grow up in that kind of rebel household um, and and hear that and not just have the trust for the government and trust uh, because it it's really like we, the people have been asleep at the wheel and what's going on. I feel like it does have to crash um, because the federal government is only supposed to be limited. It's supposed to be a small thing. And, and it's the largest institution in the world. It's the largest employer in the world, but clearly it states in the constitution and we, the people were supposed to keep that at bay, that they aren't supposed to get, get that big, that large and that powerful. And so we've come to a world where everything is owned by the same people and it's all controlled. It's a big club and we're not in it. It's a big club and we're not in it. And I always say, people say, well, you don't believe in climate change. No, I'm not saying I don't believe in climate change. What I'm saying is that if we were really committed to shifting the climate, then regenerative agriculture would be at the top of what we're doing because it's scientifically working. I, I did it myself. I can show anybody like it's working and it's not even, it's like we just got our first getting, we got Will Harris to speak and Gabe Brown at this committee, you know, the earlier this year, that's the first congressional hearing about regenerative agriculture. And we just kissed the ground, spent a lot of money, a lot of energy to just get that one hearing. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't sell anything. Regenerative agriculture cannot sell a Tesla. It cannot sell a solar panel. It cannot sell anything. And so it really has to be consumer driven, but I don't know how to get consumers to drive it because they all seem so asleep at the wheel. It's frustrating. They honestly. want convenience. They either want the convenience of the grocery store or they want the low prices of the grocery store. And they don't think that buying your vegetables or my beef is worth it, is a worthwhile investment in their health and in their life. 
that's fine. Not everybody has to be my customer either. No, not everybody has to be anybody's customer. But in order for farmers to make the shift, there does have to be an audience. And 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 I think that the direct-to-consumer beef is is take, taken off. But I do think that the cheap vegetables coming in from Mexico, coming in from other places, um, and then also just from what I what I call degenerative um, farming practices or conventional or even degenerative organic practices. I mean, I look at these fields and fields of cabbages and then fallow and then cilantro and then fallow and then onions like it it, it can't be good. It can't whatever. I, I mean, I'm not going and stealing their soil and testing it, but it cannot be good to just plow, plant, plow, plant, plow, plant. I, I know scientifically it can't be good. And so, but it's like people will get all up in arms about the polar bears, about the polar ice caps and great, but they don't realize 25% of life on the planet lives in the top 10 inches of topsoil. So there literally is not, we are extincting 25% of life on the planet. And people are like, yeah, but it's like, it's like, they're tiny. Like I don't, they're not, it's not a big deal, but those same people will shut down all of Los Angeles to save a cow from a slaughterhouse. And I'm like, great. Do you want to save a cow from a slaughterhouse? I don't know, stealing a cow from a slaughterhouse. But we can't be There's so 660,000 cows that get slaughtered every week. Go ahead, save that one. It'll I know, but it doesn't make sense. I mean, <laughs> people call me because I'm in the vegan community. People call me all the time and say, There's a cow, blah, blah, blah. Can you send, go get a trailer and go get it? And I'm always like, No. I have one time I went and got a cow, it was a pregnant cow. Someone found out that it was in the slaughterhouse. The slaughter guy was like, I don't really want to kill this pregnant cow. If you guys come get it, that's fine. So I one time got a cow that was pregnant and brought it to a shelter with my trailer. But ultimately, I'm not, It's I, I don't see why we're like freaking out about one cow in a slaughterhouse when we are plowing the fields every day for our cabbage, killing 25% of life on the planet. We, we we cannot value the cow's life over the microbiology because the microbiology is literally the foundation of our immune system. There's a 70% overlap by the microbiology in healthy soil and the microbiology in our gut. So if we are not eating food of healthy soil, we are no longer healthy beings, not mentally or physically because the microbiology has so much to do with your mind your gut mind connection is huge. So save the cow. Fine. I don't care, but save the microbiology, like shift the way we're eating so that microbiology is at the forefront of your choices. I love it. So let, let's, let's, let's stay here for a second and explore this. Sure. A little. So I, like, <clears throat> I'm not picking on you when I say vegans, because you're, you're not I'm not a vegan anyways. I just, my kids took cups with chocolate this morning out and they squeezed the milk out right out of the cow and have hot chocolate right out of the cow. So I actually think that some animal uh, protein is necessary. I There's literally almost no third generation healthy vegans in the world, or I don't know of any. 
Um, but if you look in India, there's vegetarians, third, fifth, seventh generation that are totally healthy, but you do need, I do believe there's specific things in animal proteins for long-term human health are necessary. And I, I respect people. I think veganism is a powerful tool for healing. If someone all of a sudden has colon cancer and they want to go to like a vegetable only, no grains, no starch, no whatever. It's a powerful tool for healing. I know lots of people that have healed themselves through veganism. I don't know if it's a forever procreating, being pregnant, all this stuff forever um, diet. That's my personal opinion. And I am completely honor my customers and honor their choices. But I do think there's um, compelling evidence generationally, we need some animal protein. I, and I appreciate that. And thank you for saying that. I was more going to come at it from the angle of, you know, a lot of the answer I commonly get when somebody, when I ask them, why are you vegan? Well, I'm against animal suffering. I'm like, okay, well, the question really is now, where do you draw that line of animal suffering? Because that vegan diet that you that you want to eat requires a certain size area in a certain climate to grow the food that you're going to eat for a year. What animals had to die to create that habitat? How I many? Mean, you know what? What's the habitat loss for deer, for grassland birds, for turkeys, for for ants? for beetles, so you could grow that clean field of kale. What's the environmental cost? It's crazy. And and if you saw my farm, it doesn't look like that. There's like everything growing all willy-nilly together. And so I believe in the diversity of a space. And I have a full-time ground squirrel gopher person that's like literally, I mean, he's also the watering guy, but so he's turning on and off sprinklers and setting gopher traps. And I'm going to tell you, I was naive. I came to this farming. I grew up on a farm, but it was, you know, trees. Uh, and my parents, you know, had other businesses. So it was, my dad was a carpenter. My mom made clothing and we had apples and other stone fruit. No, well, apples, not a stone fruit, but apples and stone fruit orchard. But I, came to it naively in that no animals would ever die on my farm. I literally thought that, that I could have a farm and collect the poop and blah, blah, blah. And I, I naively thought that. And I had been indoctrinated into this vegetarian, vegan, Los Angeles mindset. I, I agree that I was highly misled. And we bought these baby doll sheep to graze in the hops because we have a brewery. We have the only organic hop yard in California. Um, and a neighbor's dog, I got all these special short baby doll sheep that graze in the hops and prune them and da da da, da. Had them imported. Got, I mean, not imported, brought from another state, got them, got their whole habitat and everything set up. I'm like, first couple of weeks I have a farm and a neighbor's German shepherd digs under in nighttime and kills all of my sheep every single one of them 15 dead oh boy i come out he's just sitting in there happy as can be in the morning they're all dead or bleeding out my husband had to go get a gun and shoot a couple of them 
And I was so like upset. And then my husband's like, this had to happen. I'm glad it happened on week three because your little fantasy about no animals dying on the farm is like not reasonable. And it's, he he said it was my whiteness, but I think he means my Americanness, not, um, or my Los Angelesness. <laughs> but he was like, it's not possible. And I said, okay. And we took the sheep. I called the neighbor, you know, and, and I remember thinking in that moment, Every single meal we eat is death, whether we're eating an animal or not. And that is the privilege of being alive. People want to talk about American privilege, white privilege, whatever. The privilege of being alive is that you are eating on the backs of death. And as long as you are present to that and you honor that and you respect the way that you eat, there's nothing wrong with that because it is in it is. It is the way that God meant it to be. Every bite of food is on the backs of death. There is no food without death. There is zero food without death. It is the privilege of being alive. And we have to honor that, that we are in the living right at this moment and our eating is on the backs of death. And if you're a vegan, that is no different. It's just that the dead animal is not on your plate. And, and that's the point. That's kind of the point that I was making is, we, well, and we can even kind of back up a little bit bigger. Like we as people, as long as we don't have to see it, we can externalize that. And that, well, that's somebody else did that. That's, that's not me. That's not my problem. Or I didn't have to see that, or I'm just going to ignore that part of the system. And, you know, I think that applies to a lot of stuff, not just our food system, but, you know, our health system legal system our government system we're and, and with food we externalize those costs and you know people will say oh well it's just well we've got to use that because corn earworms well what else does it kill beside the corn earworms kills off some beetles some flies some other stuff well what ate those i mean it's and it just keeps going and going and going. And we have the chance to be the apex species that makes a huge difference or or doesn't. And that's why the whole thing of like I climate change, no climate change, that's not a powerful conversation. It's like literally we're the apex species. And are we going to support life living or are we going to be the bringers of death? That's just like the and I don't mean specifically animals dying for food. I just mean the entire ecological system it's we get to either support it or degrade it and and that is the the question of every moment as a farmer you know the people say what would jesus do or what would love do my question is like what would life do like how do i provide more life not less life yes yeah and it uh, it's been said before several times that you know most conventional guys they get up in the morning and they're going to go kill something. Whether they know it or not, they're going to go kill something. Whether we're going to hook onto the disc and go disc up the field full of Palmer Amaranth, which is great cow feed, by the way, or we're going to load up the sprayer or we're going to call the spray plane. Like there's, there's a lot of farmers days that involve death. And as a regenerative rancher, um, the, my days that involve death are, you know, they're generally scheduled, <laughs> you know, trips to the yeah. slaughterhouse. And 
that's always a solemn trip for me. And I'm always thinking of the animal and, you know, what that animal has done for me and, you know, the respect for it that I have. And it's, it's part of the cycle. And like you said, without death, there's no life. We're all made of the same stuff. We're all made of the same stardust, just arranged in slightly different, unique ways. I mean, from you to me, to the deer, to the cow, to the moose, we're all the same stuff. I mean, even that little, even that little dung beetle crawling around, same stuff. All the same stuff. I agree. And, but, and my kids and my view has shifted since being, having my own farm and all of this, my kids have watched, uh, I have a neighbor who, you know, does on farm, um, slaughter for his own family. And I've brought all my kids over there, uh, to watch it and, people think that's crazy. Why would you want your three-year-old? Why would you want your six-year-old to see that? And I always say, does your three-year-old or six-year-old eat meat? And they said, yes. And I said, well, then they need to be present to the whole part. My kids are there for cows, sheep being born. They've bottle fed bottle babies. They've lost bottle babies that they were trying so hard to save. I mean, it's part of life. And I have I have four kids, one's still just three months old, but the ones that are eating, one of them eats meat and two of them have not yet chosen. And I say not yet chosen because they're young and this is their current um, program. And I think that it's okay for them to make the choice when they're ready and fully aware of what the whole process is. Like, this is the cow, this is the cow's name, this is the cow that they loved and took care of. And- that's what sustains our family. That's what sustains. And they talk, we talk about it. And I think that it's important. I think it's important to on both sides. I think there's a lot of people that eat meat that are very disconnected from the farming process. And that lets, allows them to buy that cheap meat that was um, in. They're on sale this week. Yeah. And they're able to get, um, no connection to like what the life of that animal was and specifically what the end of life uh what for the animal was in the CAFO kind of consolidated feedlot program and and then I think that there's vegetarians that just think like okay well if I don't eat meat then that's okay but then they're eating you know GMO soy tofu from the Thai food restaurant and thinking that somehow is better with broccoli from New Zealand it's not better and so I just my thing is all about people being awake and eating in the path towards higher amounts of microbiology and it it shouldn't be so esoteric for people it should be like really clear like that top 25 percent of life on the planet is in the soil and we need to take care of it the same as we need to take care of the dolphins like the same 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 um, microbiology. You know, yes. Back to the whole, we're all made of the same stuff, just slightly different ways. You know, we, we talked about, you know, spraying glyphosate on crops and whether it's corn or whether what, whatever sprayed on wheat, and then it's, you know, processed and bleached and then enriched, you know, where's all that stuff come from? And we're going to put that in our body. And it, oh, Gail Fuller asked this question often about, you know, is, is glyphosate residue in our food 
is that harming human biology? And my doctor, who I've also had on the podcast, um, he told me that like blood tests show that over 90% of Americans have glyphosate in their urine and in their blood. Like, guys, this is a problem. And then, you know, the chemical manufacturers, of course, they're getting sued because people are getting cancer from spraying this stuff. And they're saying, oh, no, well, it doesn't build up in the human body. That's not a big deal. Um, hold on. It, it's like they're lying to us out of both sides of their mouth, saying that it's not that bad, but we only need a couple drops of it to clear your whole field. Like, it, the this is processes that are in plants. I mean, it, there's processes in plants that are in us. And the biology is the same. Glyphosate, Roundup, it's it's an antibiotic agent. I mean, it, it kills bacteria, it kills life. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, so their claim is that it doesn't have to do any harm to the human body. So the skin bag that is holding your soul, it doesn't do damage to that. But you're only 50% that, and you're 50% bacteria, viruses, fungi, all this other microbiology that's living in you. And that is highly damaged by it. And so you cannot live, a man is not an island. You cannot live a sterile life. You actually need that microbiology. Like watch a chicken take a bath, watch a horse take a bath. They do it in dirt. Like they are replenishing that onto their bodies. And so we think it's not doing anything to the physical body. And I'm not positive that that's a true claim, but let's say, let's give them that claim. It doesn't matter because it is damaging everything that holds our immune system together, holds our gut from leaking, holds all of these things together. And so the idea that it doesn't damage our body is kind of irrelevant because we do know that it's damaging everything that has a shikimate pathway, which is like all of our microbiology. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the name of the pathway, the shikimate pathway. So from what I understand, the shikimate pathway is an essential mechanism that binds zinc to the cells. And zinc is one of the elements that's very critical for immune system function. Is, is that your understanding as well? Yes, it is my understanding. It, it binds almost any nutrient. It, it stops at being able to uptake nutrients. So imagine that that's what's killed. Like it stops uptake of nutrients. So if you stop the microbiology in your body from uptaking nutrients, zinc being one of the most important ones, it, it you're stopping yourself. And then we have obesity. We have all these things because people are not getting the they're not getting what they need so they continue to feel hungry because their brain is going to continue to tell them something is missing i i, I think oh, people i think we have an obesity problem in our society because of ultra processed grains starches high fructose corn and sugar in everything a hundred percent and, but it's also, there's no nutrient density. So our body continues to tell people that they're hungry because they're not getting the nutrients and micronutrients that are, are necessary. Our bodies are 
divine and perfect. And they continue to store fat for a later day because that is what we were designed to do. If we found, we came across a beehive when we were hunters and gatherers and we were able to eat a bunch of honey and we couldn't use all that sugar that day, we stored it for another day. Our body is still doing that for us. And our body is often in a flight state of fight or flight. So we're, we're storing for later. We're, we're in fear. We're in this. And then we're eating highly processed white foods nonstop. And yes, there's sugar in tomato sauce. Like I'm a chef. I never put sugar in tomato sauce in the restaurant. Like I don't, I mean, maybe a little white wine cooked down. So that was a little sugar, but not, I don't put sugar in a tomato sauce, but if you go to the store organic or not, every fucking tomato sauce on the shelf has sugar in it. Why? We don't need it. It's in everything. And when we went to this low fat craze of the nineties, um, we started putting sugar in everything to make up for the fat. Like that's also a whole big bullshit. Like the fat is necessary and good fats are necessary. And when we only ate tallow and butter and lard, people were much skinnier. And the reality is and I think olive oil in its raw form is also good for you. I think there's a few other oils that are good for you in their raw form. Um, but I think that the highly processed seed oils are completely undigestible and are causing inflammation in so many different ways. And I, I just think we are completely immune to even, we see cottonseed oil in something like, why are we eating that? It's not even a food. Most of those oils, a lot of those seed oils, uh, canola oil. Uh-huh. Uh, the rape seed. I, I always say, oh, you like rapeseed oil? I didn't know that. Uh, the canola rapeseed. And uh, what was the other one we were just talking about? I mean, the corn oil doesn't need to be, doesn't need to be clean, but there's another one I was just thinking of that. Um, anyway, they they have to like remove the toxins from the oil because it's like as pressed from the seed. If you take that oil and try to use it, it would kill you because it's got toxins in it. It's got compounds in it that prevent that thing from being eaten at that time. So we have to remove those compounds in order to make it safe. Like uh, you talked earlier about margarine turning into a lump of plastic. Well, I mean, it's, they had to add flavoring to make margarine taste like something. It was originally developed as an industrial lubricant, not as a food. Yeah, it's crazy. And we we think about these things like they're not even approved. There's so many stuff like that that we're like not even approved for what we're using them for. I mean, what was Roundup originally approved for? It was approved as an antibiotic and then it was approved as a drain cleaner. And then they cleaned the drain and it went out to a pod and it killed everything in the pod and they were like oh my god this is the best weed killer ever and now it's on all of our food and we're feeding it to babies it's it's insanity and we look at this i was just trying to look into this appeal because people keep emailing me do you use appeal and i do not i don't use anything but water uh to clean our vegetables uh we're crazy over here just cleaning with water uh but just insane i insane i so we wanted to look into i was looking into it and like the patent it only says citric acid one percent or two percent and then well what's the other 98 percent? i don't know what it is it doesn't say it doesn't list it 
And so, and it's certified organic. And I'm just wondering like, what is this coating they're putting on all these apples and stuff that's certified organic, but nobody can see the ingredients. And it would, and it, and it was, uh, originally it's like an input. I think it's either a fertilizer or a fungicide. It wasn't even, it's not even the, the, the patent is not to cover food with it. Great moments and unintended consequences. That's just what I was, that's just what popped into my head. You know, thinking about, you know, we were the same age. We grew up, I mean, obviously in different places, but at the same time. And, you know, through the 90s and early 2000s, you know, non skit, non stick skillets. Everybody wants to buy non stick skillets. And if you use cast iron or you're just, you know, you're a Luddite if you use cast iron, you're nuts. My mom wouldn't let us have nonstick nothing. Well, good for her. But now that, you know, all this stuff's come out in the last few years about PFOAs and PFAS, guys, that's Teflon. Like that, that's, that's, those are literally the byproducts from Teflon. And that's the crap that comes off of Teflon into your food. That that's what that is. Um, I look at that and go, well, yeah, Teflon's pretty cool. It's a it's a really neat substance, but apparently it never, ever, ever breaks down and it will be here forever. And I don't know if anybody, I don't know if you, I don't know if everybody knows this, but when you put something man-made in nature, it only gets smaller. And you know, it, microplastics, I guess is what I'm, what I'm getting at microplastics and, and forever chemicals. And it circles back to, you know, we were, we were talking earlier about, about plastic packaging and, you know, styrofoam trays. They're yeah. great for convenience. They're great for keeping crap off of food. Nobody's going to deny that. But like the point I made earlier, like th- there's a lot of energy involved in making that plastic there's oil involved in making that plastic and we're just going to throw it away and not only that the chances are the food that that's wrapped around used a ridiculous amount of oil in the form of diesel fuel to make you know to till the field fertilizers herbicides pesticides harvesting it and then they're going to complain that it's two dollars for four years of corn like you should be rejoicing that it's that cheap. I I uh, have to tell you this short little story. Um, we used to sell uh, food at Coachella, which is a big music festival um, in Southern California. We had six or seven booths. It was a big operation every year. Basically, go down there for a month because there's uh, stagecoach happens right after uh, Coachella, so you sell food through the whole thing. And uh, this woman is and this is some years ago is screaming at me because she paid $15 for these nachos and how I'm putting a vegan tax and I'm taking advantage and I'm literally got a baby strapped to me I'm in the middle of the desert I'm living in an RV it's like 100 and something degrees and I just look at this woman and I'm like that's a fucking miracle that's what that is <laughs> you're mad that is organic tortilla corn 
grown in Mexico, imported here, pressed into tortillas in Los Angeles, fried right here in my food truck in the desert into homemade chips. That is cabbage grown in Ventura County. I can tell you the name of the farmer. Her name is Ayala. And that is jalapenos from Ayala as well. That is beans that were imported from Mexico as well, certified organic. And then on top of that, you have nacho, cashew nacho cheese. The nachos came from India. Women's fingers are black and burned off from cleaning those raw cashews because the cashew is toxic to be opened when it's not been cooked yet. And all of that has been put into a plate in a little boat and sold to you for $15 in the VIP section where it cost you $450 to have this ticket or whatever it was at that time, probably more. Uh, that's a fucking miracle. That is not a ripoff. And you don't even deserve to have it. I'm going to give you back your $15. And I took her food from her. She just stared at me like, <laughs> and I gave back her $15. That's awesome. I would love to have had that on video. <laughs> I mean, it's just people have no concept of what it took to get anything to do anything honestly the i just We've had it too easy for too long yes nobody knows how to do anything in the brick and mortar physical world when i tell people i'm moving to texas they're like "Ooh, you're okay with the politics i'm like oh i'm moving because of the politics and they're like oh <laughs> oh sure they can't like reconcile it because they're like don't know what to say because they're like, oh, she's an organic farmer and a vegan chef and like whatever they made up about themselves, what they think I am. And but it's be and they and then they start to talk to me. Well, why? And I start to explain about my businesses and the bureaucracy and everything. And they're like, oh, well, I guess as a movie editor, I never had to think about that. Oh, I guess as a content creator, I never had to think about that. I guess as a yoga instructor, I never had to think about the thing is, is 90% of people's jobs nowadays, they don't have to do anything physical in the real world. They do not have to bring anything into fruition from an idea into shape, form, and experience. And without doing that in the real world, you actually have no idea how hard it is to maneuver and how the government is trying intentionally to make it harder for us to maneuver so that they can have the largest market share or their... the the BlackRock arm of the government can have the bigger uh, market share. I'd argue that 90% of all jobs are BS. Yeah. I mean, I if you can't describe your job to a five-year-old in three words or less, you probably have a bullshit job. I agree. But I had to plug in my computer. Sorry. Um, I agree. I, I agree. And most people don't do anything like my kids go every day and pick up eggs those eggs get washed and get sold to the farmer's market um and i always tell my kids this is more than a lot of adults have to do in the real world <laughs> and and that's like silly but yeah it takes an hour they got to go there the chicken houses are all you know around because they get moved and they got to go and they got to collect them all up and and it's it's important for them to know my kids save seeds my kids make clones my kids do all these things because i think it's important to know how to do stuff we might be that last generation i can sew i can crochet i can cross stitch i can can food i can cook food i can preserve food i can dry food i can braid garlic like the basic shit that everyone knew how to do a hundred years ago we might be the last generation that knows how to do it 
That's kind of scary. Do you know how many times someone has called me from one of my restaurants and said they had called a something, something, something. And it's like the breaker. They called a plumber. They called it this, they call it. And it's like the breaker was off. Like I, I, I'm like, or I'll go in and they'll say the air conditioning is broken and I'll look and they have it set at 68 degrees and it's a hundred outside and they've frozen it. And I am say, well, you got to turn it off, put it on fan only and let it dethaw. And they're like, well, you don't you want to call the air conditioning guy? No, I don't need to call the air conditioning guy. You can't have there be a 40 degree differential from what it is outside to what you set the air conditioning at because it'll never reach temperature. It'll never turn off. These are simple facts of life. We shouldn't have to call an air conditioner guy for that. But this is, and these are like the upper management. These are people getting paid a hundred plus thousand dollars a year that don't know to check the breaker. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was my job. Nobody told me that. I was walking in Echo Park, which is where one of my restaurants is, um, on Tuesday. And these two girls were walking and I was changing a diaper in my car and they were talking behind me and I could hear their conversation. And the one girl said, if she texts me again when I'm not on the clock, I'm going to let her know it is totally inappropriate to infringe on my personal time. And I just laughed. Like, I thought nobody ever got successful by working eight hours a day and not contributing to your job when if like if someone needs a question when you're off the clock, like nobody ever got successful that way. I worked for seven years with no days off. I don't recommend it, but I own restaurants and I'm a farmer. Like I'm work in the two hardest industries in the world in some ways, and there's no days off and you're a hundred percent in it. And so when I look at these people who are like, oh, well, you texted after 5 p.m., I'm like, yeah, the, the restaurant's open till midnight and you moved something and I need to know where it was. Like, what do you mean? Yes, I did. I there, Someone got injured. I need, I, I have to like say to my assistant when I hire them, like, there's going to be text messages on weekends or after 5 p.m. because if someone gets injured, we may have to file a workers' comp claim. OSHA only gives us eight hours to da 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 you have to tell them that because otherwise you get someone that says you can't text them after 5 p.m. or it's violence against their free time. Okay. I'm not okay. going to text my banker after five o'clock and ask about any bank business. No, that's reasonable. But if you work at a restaurant that's, that's open till midnight. Yeah. I mean, you handle stuff while business is going on. I mean, I, I totally get that. Anybody I do cow business with, like nine o'clock is generally the cutoff, you know, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. Those are generally quiet hours. After that, you know, if, if your eyes are open in agriculture, you better be ready to do business because somebody can call you two seconds before you go to bed and want to talk about something and give you, you know, a $10,000 or $100,000 opportunity. And, you know, likewise, just because it's not, you know, technically work hours when the sheriff's dispatch calls, I can't just say, well, you know, I don't clock in till eight, so I'm not going to, I'll call them back. No, they're calling me because there's something wrong. Usually neighbor's cows out every once in a while. It's one of mine, but you know how that goes. I do. So, I mean, there's times, you know, there, there's, there's people in the world that need to have a work-life boundary. And yeah, okay, if you're an advertise, 
and there's probably a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be handled after hours. Like if you work at McDonald's and your boss is texting you after hours. Yeah. Ignore that guy. You should probably find a new job anyway. (laughs) But what I'm getting at is, you know, yeah, people have different schedules and those two chicks having that conversation, they're probably in that 90% of people that have a bullshit job that doesn't matter. Yeah. And, but I can't have a job that doesn't matter. My husband talks to me about this a lot. He says, there's a lot easier ways for us to make a living. There's a lot easier ways that we could make much more money. And you want to be this best cell in the body of the earth. And that makes life harder on us. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's true. I can't be inspired about selling. I mean, I don't know, having a corner store and selling food filled with Roundup and corn syrup and selling, you know, car calling cards or whatever. Like, I just, I can't, I can't feel inspired about that. I understand. I mean, okay. So you've got four kids. Is that counting your oldest that's adopted? No, five. Okay. So you have five. Yes. You have five kids, three farms. You're moving to Texas and you have four restaurants. Yes. Do you have any free time? I sleep six hours a night. Oh, oh I, I shouldn't say free time. Do you have any recreational time? <laughs> uh, we try to incorporate recreation into our lives, but, um, you know, my kids are getting older now and it's, it's getting to that. We have to schedule time. Like I just took four days and took them to be with all their cousins with, um, and, you know, we sat around the pool and I worked limited hours and let them just play with the cousins and everything like that. And we try to, you know, my daughter's riding horses every day. So we try to go do that in the afternoon and everybody watches her. But um, my recreation time is more like being a mother, I guess. <laughs> well, and that that kind of leads into what I was going to say next anyway. Um, so my wife's family has a pizza restaurant been open over 30 years i mean it's a pretty good place and i've heard her say it probably at least uh once a month for the last 10 years that owning a restaurant is like having a child that never grows up so you not only have you have four kids under eight you have four restaurants and three farms (laughs) it's just like 12 kids (laughs) it's and and yeah, and it's super challenging. Um, but I'm I'm hoping to find someone to take over this farm in California and buy it and continue what we've done. It would be a travesty to have someone just tear it all up and plant lemons and spray Roundup every day. Um, but I can't I can't be spread this thin. And um, we are shifting our business model in two of our restaurants to to go only um, because you know we're doing. Almost room space is a lot of overhead. Yeah, it's 5,000 square foot and all this overhead. And we're still doing $2 million in to-go sales. And then we're paying 30% to those third parties. So we've we've modeled two of them to go from the in-person to like a cloud kitchen model where there's no actual restaurant that you can go sit to at, but you can get it delivered. I don't love that, but I, I also... I don't know what else to do. Um, the land, you know, it came to leases being up and, and landlords and all that stuff. And so, um, 
And so I hope to move to Texas and do this on farm where the whole business is on farm. And I hope to, um, you know, transition out of my California restaurants and let the CEO take it over. Hopefully um, we're not there yet. And then have a business that's fully on farm restaurant, brewery, um, CSA, micro dairy, all on the 300 to 250 acres in Texas. Well, you've talked about California a little bit. And I've gathered from some clues, you're not far from LA, you're in Southern California. Um, So maybe tell me a little bit about where you're at in California and tell me where you're going in Texas. And I've got, you're talking about pecan trees and 320 acres. I'm going to guess that you're east of 35 and south of 40. No, sort of, I guess. I'm west of I'm 35 west of- is north-south through Dallas, and 40 is east-west through Dallas. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. 40, 40 is in Oklahoma. What's the one so, in Dallas? 10? So I'm just above San Antonio in Bandera, between Bandera and Kerrville. Okay. Um, so I'm kind of west, southwest of Austin and northwest of San Antonio. Okay. And... um. It's uh, like beautiful fields, river uh, bottom fields with super deep topsoil that has been just kind of neglected and overraised. But I mean, it's a lot of topsoil, nothing like <laughs> here in California. I mean, it's like six, seven feet. You can look at the side of the creek bed of the topsoil, uh, which is we have nothing like that here, uh, but it's highly alkaline soil. Um, and then, you know, there's several hundred acres of cedars. So there's this, I have like about a hundred acres of perfect pastures, flat as can be. And then um, there's cedars on either side, like a hundred acres of, and it's this whole valley. Um, and then there's going to, there's a lot of places on the cedar area that can be silvo pastures. We're working on clearing and po- like lollipopping up the cedars and making these silvo pastures. And then we're setting up in the thick cedars where it's too hard to even get in there. I'm trying to set up um, 12 pig paddocks so we can start moving pigs through and clearing out the cedar that way and then um, going in there. So there's a, a fair amount of perfect ag land that's already there that they've just used for um grazing cattle and hay and then uh which we're working on regenerating and um we have a summer cover crop in there now that's struggling with the heat and um you know we've been adding manure adding cedar chips and then we're also got about a 10 greenhouses going um and we'll be doing vegetables under glass but under plastic um and then we have the several about 15 acres of orchard um that we've just planted very experimental you know 20 of this 20 of that to see what's going to go um people aren't really farming anything except for cattle and sheep in this area so doing a more diverse farm is going to be different for the area and um we've been having good success um on what we're trying but I, I don't really have the labor force over there yet. And my, my attention is distracted. So we're not fully functioning. And then we're building an event space um, for retreats and stuff. And then we have already purchased all the brewery equipment and we're putting in a brewery there. It's going to be called wild Texas brewing or in the barn brewing. Which one do you guys like better? You can put, 
let him know. Um, and that's what we're doing uh, in Texas. And then in California, we're um, along the Sespe Creek, which the Sespe Creek is um, the last undammed river in Southern California. And so the last undammed river um, in Southern California, and it stayed live, even though we only had two inches of rain two years in a row, less than three inches of rain two years in a row, it continued to be live water. That And my neighbor, Mr. King, who used to own this house, says that it, in his 87 years, it's or 90, he's turning 90 this year, 90 years, it's never gone dry. And so that is uh it's a it's a beautiful place it's the most water rich valley in southern california um but it's also in the crazy bureaucracy of <laughs> but it's also in southern california it's also in southern california <laughs> i mean it's epically beautiful i i uh kiss the ground just put out a film about what we did in five years here if people want to watch it it's stories of regeneration on their it's only 11 minutes, so it's not a big commitment. Um, but you can see, I mean, it's just every inch is covered from citrus, 100, you know, we have 40 varieties of avocados and 30 varieties of citrus and just epic biodiversity and massive amounts of food. And, um, but it's really been a struggle to make it all work. Well, I'm excited to, uh, I'm excited to hear back from you after you get moved down to Texas and follow up on 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 your experiments because you know, everything's experimental um some of the things you're saying about cedar trees are are very interesting um my preferred strategy to deal with them is to light them on fire and then grind them to dust and then light what's left on fire and then grind that to dust um and i've had i've had pretty good results i kind of feel like the only good cedar tree is one that's been horizontally redistributed in the form of mulch. Um, that being said, only about one in 10 to one in seven Eastern red cedar trees. I don't know if you're referring to a different type because I know they have some different types down there around San Antonio, but the Eastern red cedar tree, Virginia's junipers, um, only about one in seven to one in 10 are a female and have berries. So if you want to keep some trees, don't keep those because those are seed source for, for the rest of them. And if you want everybody with allergies to thank you later, you'll cut down the males too, because cedar pollen, when those things blow up, oh, here it usually happens between the 10th and 15th of March. When they blow up, I mean, it's just like this huge cloud of brown blowing off these trees. And that pollen, it's like, it's like little razor blades. You can just feel it tearing up your eyes and tearing up your nose. So I, I also understand what you, you know, the alkalinity in the soil. I un, I understand where you're coming from. I'm just saying that uh, my experience with cedar trees, I'd much rather not have them at all. I wouldn't mind seeing them just go away completely. But I also do recognize that they do, do, did have a historical niche in the ecosystem. And there were places that, that cedar trees have probably been and could have been existing in those areas since the last ice age, just because of where they are. And I say that because, uh, we had a wildfire come through here in 2016, 340 some thousand acres. And the day that it burned across the ranch, it was 85 degrees with about 10% humidity and 45 mile an hour wind. 
if that fire didn't get those trees and eight prescribed fires over the last 30 years didn't get those trees, there's probably not a whole lot that's going to burn those trees up. So I- yeah, I mean, we have some that are, uh, I had the guy from Bamberger Ranch come down and give us some advice about what cedars to take you out and what to, because he's had a lot of success with that. And he said there's some of them that he was saying were 300 to 400 years we have been there that we have, I mean, they're huge cedar trees. And then we have a ton of that's old, not old growth. So I want to try to get out all the young um, and, and open up the canopy so that these little sprinkles of water actually reach the ground. Um, Cause there's lots of splashes of water, not torrential downpours that don't ever make it to the ground. They hit the top of the closed canopy of the cedar and then they evaporate off. And so my goal is to open up that canopy um, and, and have more water hit the ground, more water going into the aquifers and then, gr- and then grind it all up, turning it into um, mulch and helping the mulch making material to acidify the soil. All the, all the mulching and grinding that I did, there were places that I left the mulch layer just right on the ground and I didn't really disturb the ground or disturb the, disturb the grass that was there. And I just left it. There were mm-hmm. other places where I had a super deep layer. Like uh, there was one place I had almost 18 inches deep of mulch and I'm like, oh man, I can't leave it like this. So I ended up just taking the tool and going back through it several more times and getting it really, really churned up and really chopped up finer. And what I ended up doing was incorporating some soil into that. I went back to that spot literally nine months later, like halfway, like I I did that in the winter and came back the middle of next summer. Couldn't even see the mulch. It was just, it was five, six foot tall, big blue stem and Indian grass. Just incredible. Everywhere that I took the cedar, that I took cedars and ground them to dust and incorporated soil into that mulch and, and spread it around. It looks amazing. The places where I just mulched it and left the mulch letting standing on the ground, not as great. The places that were mulched left on the ground and then burned still not as great. So definitely incorporating, incorporating some of the soil into your mulch pile and getting that, you know, getting that biology jump started, I think is really important. So that's- I, I agree. I totally agree. And we've been doing some different experiments with that and also just piling the mulch and then adding the cow, you know, cleaning the cow stalls and adding that, adding that, adding that, adding the whey when we're making cheese to like up the microbiology and then putting it out after it's been sat for with some soil, with some um, cow to get it like started, jump started before we spread it around. And I mean, we've had epic results with mulch in Southern California here, I mean, you can't, uh, we had no soil here. Like literally there was no, it was just rocks and everything else had blown away. And just, we just kept, kept mulching, kept mulching, and then kept adding material from the cows. And within just the five years that we've been here, we have so much. And we did do all the orchard rows when the trees were young, 18 inches of straight mulch for weed as the weed barrier. And they just cleared a space around each tree so they didn't burn. And that's gone. It's absolutely gone. In places that were not growing food, unfortunately, the, um, what is the grass that I hate that people grow all over Texas? Um, 
Bermuda grass is invasive and has come in um, all over. But honestly, I'm not that mad at the Bermuda grass in an orchard system because it's it's building carbon. It has spongy soil and it can take away that. Sorry about that. It can take away um, that mulch and make it into nothing in almost no time at all. And that is the one benefit of um, that is the one benefit of uh, Bermuda grass is it can destroy mulch and turn it into soil, but you'll never get rid of the Bermuda grass. <laughs> but in a tree system, it doesn't matter. Well, I, I was just thinking back, you know, like I said, when we started, I just finished listening to, to 1491. Yeah. And I should have forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Something about unintended consequences. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I completely went blank on that one. Well, I'm excited to grow some blue stem. We just ordered some um, seeds. We never, there's nothing on our, there's none that I can find on our property now. Um, but we did just order some seeds and I'm excited uh, to try it out and to get some other natives going because yeah, people just put Bermuda grass all around in that area for hay. I remember what I was going to say. Yes. So what's the difference between an archeologist and a grave robber? The timing. What's the difference between a native species and an invasive species. The timing. There you go. So, okay. I mean, that that's one viewpoint, right? That's one viewpoint. And we're living in an, in an environment, and this kind of really became clear over the last few days listening to this book. The America that we think that we discovered, we discovered something that was changing so rapidly because of something that events that were set in place in 1491 and 1492, like, and those changes were still being felt, you know, all the way up to the, when the frontier was settled in the 1880s and 1890s. And, you know, 500 years of, of rapid population decrease, rapid population increase in some things like, uh, one of the things they talk about in that book is the passenger pigeon. You know, folks used to say that, you know, the passenger pigeon used to, used to like a flock used to take two days to pass. Well, the stuff that they eat, the, the Indians would have kept them under control. I get was the point the book was making. The Indians would have kept them under control. And the same thing with the bison. I've, I've said this for, for quite a while now that the depopulation of the native Americans and their reliance on bison and using bison for hunting and as a source of food, when in the span of just a couple hundred, when maybe 50 to a hundred years, 90% of your people are, don't aren't there anymore. Those populations that were dependent on humans for control, like the passenger pigeon, like the bison would explode out of control. And by the time, us Europeans, us new worlders, us Americans get here and we see these huge flocks of passenger pigeons, we think they must have always existed. Similarly, we discover someplace and we think that it must have always been this way. But nothing is ever, nothing in nature is ever the same. Things in nature change on such a long scale 
that we have to be there for years and years and years to observe it and document it. And even animals, you know, an animal population can change. You know, we didn't, we used to think the passenger pigeon was so huge in numbers that, that nobody could ever imagine them not being there one day. And then all of a sudden they were just gone. So I'm not sure where I'm going anymore. I'm just kind of rambling, but uh, I, I think but to the point is that Bermuda grass is invasive and, but at some point it's actually just going to be an indigenous species to this area that the middle of the country and also in California, because it's really good at living in this environment. Really good at living in the environment where you created, but you know, the point is like here, a lot of people deal with a plant called old world blue stem, which I could probably talk about two hours for old world blue stem. Is it a concern of mine? Yes. Is it spreading across the ranch? Yes. Have I tried in the past to manage it with chemical? Yes. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. I, I, I wish I had the money back that I've always, that I've sprayed on that stuff because it didn't do anything. I mean, you spray it to dirt for three years in a row and bare soil, and then it comes back and it comes back thicker than it was before you started spraying it because everything else there's because you have to spray so much either, uh, I mean, ground sterile, whether you want to use, what the hell was it that I used? I didn't use Roundup. I used something else. Arsenal, I think is what it was. It's just total ground sterile. Well, after you do that, the only thing that grew there was old world blue stem. Huh. You know, and I don't believe that invasive species being successful, like you know, I've heard some people in the regenerative ag or holistic ag community say, that, well, that's just a sign of poor health. Make your soil better and those will go away. I, oh, uh, no, I don't think my native big blue stem is going to compete with the grass that was bred in a laboratory to succeed in hot, dry conditions. Sorry, it's, it's not going to happen. So no. the point is, we need to learn how to utilize those resources in the environment that they're in rather than trying to spend untold amounts of time, money, and chemicals to try to get rid of them. I 100% agree. And I spent a lot of money. I didn't use chemicals, but labor in trying to get rid of the Bermuda grass. And But then we feed Bermuda grass to our animals. And so I, there's no way to get rid of it. It's in our compost. It's in our, it's, it's in, it's everywhere. And what I realized is that we just have to keep it at bay where we're growing vegetables, but in the aisleways underneath the trees, that's not where we're growing vegetables. I mean, it goes dormant in the wintertime here in California. And so you have all that time to use those aisleways that have a lot of that you can grow cabbage, broccoli, whatever in the wintertime because it's dormant. And then in the summertime, it literally works as a cooling for all those trees because it's this much grass underneath these trees that are, I mean, we're at the edge of where we should be growing avocados. We're at the edge of where we should be growing a lot of things we're growing. And the heat is a, is a concern. And so 
I now have this grass that doesn't die in the heat. Doesn't it's just like epically and is so resilient. You put weed barrier. I mean, all I weed barrier anywhere and put just straight mulch on top of it. The Bermuda grass will grow over the weird barrier, turn that mulch into soil and the microbiology is passing through the weed barrier. So it's like, forget about it. Forget about trying to get rid of it. It's just about managing where you're going to use it and then you let it build soil. I mean, we had, I don't know if you heard, but in January, we had major flooding here in Southern California, major flooding um, on the farm here. I was on, I guess I was on the news, even in Europe, someone said they saw me there, but I mean, 18 inches of water running across the farm. Everywhere that we had Bermuda grass was fine. Uh, there was zero erosion. The trees did not get teared out. Everything was okay. Yes, I mean, the beard grass was flat from the water running over it, but that's it. But anywhere that there was bare soil, the roads, all of the roads were just rocks, like this much, you know, just, just rocks and all the dirt had washed away. We lost whole strawberry beds, whole the whole greenhouse filled with this much silt. But the silt literally just ran over the Bermuda grass, ran over it and went down and then got caught in a fence or something. But it didn't destroy. And then I look at my neighbor. He lost tons of avocado trees because their feet got so wet, so like stagnant water on top that couldn't infiltrate. I didn't lose a single avocado tree to wet feet. We had a lot of damage, but it was fencing irrigation and we lost about 100 chickens that got buried in the silt but we didn't lose any trees and i think it's because the bermuda grass had the water infiltrate better to be honest or at least held the soil in place and so it didn't soil. leave and it, what i what i'm seeing in my mind is you know i'm just seeing the grass laid over as a protective mat to keep the water from eroding the soil and as soon as it's gone, that grass just springs right back up. And yeah, you're right. There is there is some of it that's going to be soaking in. But when it's 18 inches deep and basically a river running through, when I see that, I assume the underlying soil is already pretty much at saturation capacity or is already at max infiltration. This is just the excess that's got to go somewhere else. But you could look around and we had, I mean, we had damage, but it was all in the culverts. It was all, I mean, our fields are fine. Our, our, and it was only where we had like rows of kale or something like that, that just got washed away. But anywhere that there was, and in the hop yard, we have a native, we have like a compilation cover crop of a native Southwest uh, blend. That's very matty. Um, and what happened there is a lot of silt got de deposited on top of it and you could almost not see it, but it all has now come up through the hop yard and come up. And also the hops, the hops are all, we're actually going to start hop harvest this week, which is very early. And then there's some hops that are not even going to be ready. We're going to have to have kind of a segmented hop harvest because so much silt buried them. They all emerged through the silt at different times. But if you dig up the soil in the hop yard, you'll see there's like four or five inches of this new silt. And then there's our black normal soil that we built and then rock down below. You know, it's it's like a le new layer in the conversation. And so um, e anywhere we had cover crops, whether it was the Bermuda grass or this other blend or whatever, there wasn't damage. And that's like the real testament.
Very cool. Well, I, I've really enjoyed visiting with you today. I know there's several people that I know down around San Antonio, a couple of them I've had on the podcast. Hopefully uh, they'll reach out and, and connect with you and welcome you to the area when you get down there. I'd love to come down and see it. You'll see, you know, 25, 30 tiny houses on a communal farm. It just, that sounds awesome. I'd love to get down there and see it. Um, so before we go, why don't you tell us how people can get a hold of you, where they can find you on social media and where you want to, anywhere else you want to drive some traffic to? Um, yeah. So I'm Chef Molly on uh, Instagram and my farm in Texas is Sovereignty Ranch on Instagram. And my farm in California is so a heart, like to plant a seed of love. So, so a heart. And um, if anybody were doing a um, big raise right now for the brewery and the tiny house village, like you spoke about. So if anybody's interested in investing, there's that on the website there. And um, please reach out with any questions. And I look forward to being in Texas. And hopefully I will meet more farmers there doing totally different things. And we can share knowledge because that's really what it's all about. For sure. And you, did you say what your website was or did I miss it? Uh, it's soaheart.com or sovereigntyranch.com or sageveganbistro.com. Okay. Um, I have to go. I'm late to this next um, conference call and I'm getting poked from people outside <laughs> via the digital world. Well, I wasn't trying to kick you off, but uh, I guess you do have to go. So. I'm so sorry. I apologize. I don't want to get kicked off. I so enjoyed visiting with you and I look forward for you coming to uh, check out everything in Texas. And I'm hoping we can do different conferences with several regenerative farmers and different kinds of gatherings to share knowledge once we have all the tiny houses set up and the retreat center and the um, classrooms, because I think it is powerful for everybody to share the knowledge. We are, you know, doing this kiss the ground cotton and helping these Texas farmers transition to regenerative um, cotton and Citizens for Humanity has agreed to buy all the cotton. And it's just really moving to see these farmers sharing information with each other, what they're seeing in their soil and everything. And so I think it's important for us to gather and, and, and share that information. You'll love the West. <laughs> You'll love it once you get out of California. I hope so. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I'll let you get to your next meeting, Molly. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, gang, have a great week. Thank you, Brian. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.